It is Christmas, and I love that, that song because it reminds us that he's not just the baby Jesus, but he's also our Savior. He came to save us. Now, you might be thinking, well, what is he saving me from? Because I don't think I need to be saved. What is he saving me from? Good question. And hopefully we'll be able to answer that this morning because sometimes we forget what Christ is able to do in our lives. When you came in, you were given your bulletin and we're in our, our series called Seasons because the Bible says to everything there is a season. It says that in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's a season, every season, everything, under the sun, under heaven, there's a season for everything. There's a time for everything. And so for many of us, we're in a season of looking for what is that next best thing. What will help my life to be better or what will uh, give me a better future? What could prepare me for what's coming up next? And so last week, we talked about the season of searching. That we're all searching for something, but really it should be that we're like the wise men searching for the Savior. But why do we call him Savior? Because we can again look at Christmas and miss the very point why Christmas even exists. Sure, it is the birth of Jesus Christ, but even more than that, that he came for a reason. Not just to be born, but to be our Savior. Again, he has many names, but one of them that we understand is that he's our Savior. But what in the world does that mean? Why do we call him Savior and, and how does that affect my life? Does it affect my life and, and should it affect my life? Now many of us know the Christmas story that Jesus was born in a manger. A, a, an animal feeding trough. A little, a little animal uh, where they would put the food for the animal. He was born uh, and, and they put him in there because they had no crib for him. And so we understand that part of the Christmas story. We were in a, our staff meeting some years ago. And so we're giving ideas on how we can decorate the place. You know, how we can make our, our, uh, our campus look really good for the Christmas season. And so everybody's popping out ideas. And I thought, hey, I, got, I have a really good idea. I said, how about we do this? And I'm, I'm new on staff at that point. And I said, uh, what if we did like, a, um, like, like live animals with, you know, with, the, with uh, Mary and Joseph and, and uh, if we just had live animals that we could put together like that, you know, that activity scene. That we could just put this together and everything would, it would look like real life. And then everybody's looking at me like, what are you talking about? I said, you know, the activity scene that they put together. You know, you have Mary and Joseph and the animals and, and things. And, and Pastor Steve is next to me. He goes, nah. Nativity. And I said, what? He said, it's, it's a nativity. nativity. I said, yeah, yeah, whatever, that. Dude, let's do that. And, I, and, and I'm just being very honest. I did not know it was called a nativity scene. I thought it was called an activity scene because there was activities happening. Now, some of you guys are looking at me like, it is an activity scene. What is a nativity scene? Now, we know, we, we know the Christmas story and some of us may not. Maybe we think of it as an activity that's going on in the world. But it's more than that. Christmas is a whole lot more than just a story. It's something of the heavenly, something that's supernatural, something that only God could do. And only something that God could put together in that kind of way. Because we can all think of ideas on how we could have done it differently. 
But I tell you this, God knows exactly how to do things. He does things so well. And we come so close to the Christmas story, but so far from the Christmas Savior. Now in our notes in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah gives a prophecy about what's about to take place hundreds of years from when he pens these words. And he says in Isaiah 9 verse 2 that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, will the light will shine on them. That those who walk in darkness, in other words, people who may choose to disobey God or people who choose to go their own way, God will still reveal himself to them. Or for those who live in a dark land, those who maybe by circumstance, not necessarily by choice, but just, just with what's happening in life, that are living in a dark and unpleasant situation. That even those people, God will still shine His light on them. Because for many of us, we don't choose the situation we're in. Sometimes because of life, we now find ourselves in that situation. But God said, even then, the light will shine. So I thought, let's, let's shine some light on some areas on how Jesus being the Savior affects my life. Because think about it, everything that Jesus did, the life that he lived on this earth, the Bible says that if it was recorded, every single thing, there would not be enough libraries to keep the books and contain everything that he did. So the Bible, even just the short uh, stories and the short uh, things that the, that the apostles and, and uh, those who wrote down things of Jesus Christ, even though it's in this one booklet, actually 66 books in all, compiled in this one small library, even though it's there, there's so much more that Christ did. And so we don't want to miss the fullness of Christ. We don't want to miss the fact that Jesus did whatever needed to be done to qualify him as our Savior. There's so much that he did that has not been recorded. But if you're taking notes, you can write in the first thing, and this, this will help us to think this through, that Jesus qualified, qualifies for the position as Savior. See, nobody else could do that. Jesus had to experience a sinless life as a human in order to rescue humans. That's why God sent him to, to this earth to die for us. Because he needed to experience what humanity is all about so he could rescue humanity. And that's why he came in the image of God, being all God, yet all man. The Son of God, so that he could experience humanity to die for it. So that we could have this relationship with God. Hebrews 4.15, it says that we do not have a high priest. Let, let's just pause right here. The high priest were the ones who would actually be those who were in charge of the religious ceremonies, the practices, the worship for God's people. And so what the high priest would be uh, responsible for was for the sacrifices when they brought the animals and then the people would transfer their sin to the animal. It was the high priest that would take care of all of this. And then the sins of the people would be transferred to, let's just say, like a goat. And then they would actually, for some of them, slaughter. But for the scapegoat, they would actually have the scapegoat leave the community and have to run with all the sin in that animal into the wilderness. And so the high priest was responsible for this. And let's continue. Who is unable 
to sympathize with our weakness. Excuse me, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And here it is, yet without sin. Now we're tempted, but we're tempted, and then we, we do what we're tempted to do, and so we sin, or we disobey God, or we've done something that is not pleasing to God. And so now we're in this place called sin, which separates us from God. Jesus was tempted in every way possible, like how we are, yet he did not succumb to temptation. He did not sin. That qualifies him as Savior because he's able to rescue us from something that he overcame. So whatever tempts us, whatever temptation comes our way, when we call upon the name of the Lord or we trust in Him or we have this relationship with Him, He gives us the power to be saved from whatever is tempting us. Whatever it could be. It could be temptation uh, with anger. It could be uh, temptation with lust. It could be temptation uh, with going to beat up somebody. It could be temptation with cheating or lying or stealing. It could be any type of temptation. He's able to overcome that and he'll, go, he'll move in and through us for that. You see, sin is the one area that we can't save ourselves from. We can save people from, uh, from a burning building. We can save people from drowning. We can save people from bad relationships, if they listen. We can save people from financial destruction, if they listen. We can save people from certain things, but we cannot save people from sin. Only Christ could do that. And John the Baptist, who is, who is Jesus' cousin, who's about three months older than Jesus, even he understood that Jesus was to be the Savior. Look at what John 1.29 says. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, if we rewind the tape from the very beginning, remember Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. They ate of the fruit that they were told not to. And so now through this one man's disobedience, because of his sin, it has been transferred to the rest of humanity. And so we all now have within us this sinful nature that rebels against God, that wants to do its own thing. And Adam's disobedience separated us from God, leaving us in a self-destructive mode. But because of Jesus' obedience to God, many are now in a Savior-saving mode. Because of the Son of God. Romans 5.19 explains it this way. Because one person disobeyed God, many people became sinners. That's you and I. But because one other person obeyed God, many people will be made right in God's sight. Yeah, the Bible says we're all sinners. Did you know that? That we're, we're all sinners? I would tell you, turn to the person next to you and tell them that they're a sinner. But we all know we are. Wives, hang on, relax, don't need to turn to them. We're all sinners. We all fall short, the Bible says, of the glory of God. We're all unholy people. We're unrighteous. But because of Jesus Christ, He makes us righteous before an, an almighty God. Earlier this year, uh, I, had a, I had surgery to take out my appendix. And, and before I went into surgery... The doctor sat with me and he explained everything that they were going to do, which I was glad that he explained everything because it made it that much more easy to go into surgery. And so he said, okay, um, Mr. Loxino, what we're going to do is we're going to go in and uh, we're going to do a couple incisions here and here and here. 
And so as we go in, uh, we're going to do a couple things and we're going to go in arthroscopically and we're going to take out your appendix. Uh, we'll get it all sutured up and, and you should be recovering in about maybe three to four, maybe six weeks. And I said, oh, simple. He goes, it should be. I said, like, what, what are the things that can go wrong? And he says, and it's not really that bad. It'll be fine. You go, it will give you anesthesia and you'll be out for about 45 minutes. And so the sh surgery should take about 45 minutes. I'm thinking, why are you talking so calm? Like, what is the mind trick here? What, is there anything that can happen? And he says, he says, no, everything will be fine. I said, wait a minute. The surgery takes 45 minutes. The anesthesia takes 45 minutes, or it, it lasts 45 minutes. Am I going to like wake up toward the ending? Is, is everything going to be okay? But he explained everything, every question that I had, he explained it. And guess what? Surgery, easy. Everything went well. Everything went well. If, and from what I understand, it's not a difficult surgery if, you know, if things go well with the doctor. And I thought, this doctor, when everything was said and done, and I'm completely healed and everything was done, I thought... This doctor did not qualify as doctor because he had a degree. He did not qualify because he had the right doctor voice. He did not qualify because he looked like a doctor. He did not qualify because he signed like a doctor. Or that he was completely germ-free like a doctor. You know what qualified him? What qualified him is that he performed the operation correctly. That's what qualified him. And what showed his qualification was my healing there on after. That he did everything that he was supposed to do for my surgery. Jesus qualifies as Savior because he, he, he operated on sin correctly. No one else could do what he did. He qualifies as Savior because of what He has done and how He did what He did. He, he lived this life exactly how you and I live, except without sin. That qualifies Him as Savior. Hebrews 12, excuse me, 10 verse 12, it says, But our high priest offered himself to God as one sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Which means there's no expiration date on it. Then he sat down at the place of highest honor at God's right hand. Then it continues in verse 14. By that one offering, he perfected forever all those whom he is making holy. That he's setting us apart. He's making us holy or to purify internally by renewing of the soul. That there's something happening on the inside that makes us free from the guilt of sin. See, sin makes us feel guilty but God's forgiveness gives us a holy and pure lifestyle. That even though, yes, we, we have this righteousness with God, sin still pulls at us because the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Which brings us to the second thing, to give to God what is dead in exchange for what is alive. And you can write that in your second point. Give to God what is dead in exchange for what is alive. Because there are certain areas in our life that are dead, but we still live with it. It's dead, but we still hang on to it. A past hurt. Words that someone has spoken. A mistake that someone made. Miscommunication. 
and we still hang on to it. Something that took place in our lives years ago, decades ago, or maybe something happened to our children, maybe, uh, maybe a separation and you, you didn't heal from what they went through. Uh, maybe as a child, maybe they went through something and, and we still hang on to that. It's something that's dead. We can't bring that back to life and we would dare not want to. But you know what we're actually doing by keeping it around? We're actually carrying around dead weight in our life. And it drags us down. For the wages of sin is death. Therefore, exchange what is dead for what is alive. And Christ brings things to life. Did you know that we serve an alive God? That he's not about the dead. He's about the living. In fact, this is how Matthew says it in chapter 22, verse 32. He says that, God says this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. How come as Christians, sometimes we walk around dead? We just walk around dead. Have you ever seen people or Christians that, you ask, hey, how are you doing? Well, you know, things are going okay. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're, a, you're someone who has received Christ? Yeah. And so what's wrong? Well, you know, things aren't going as well. Stop! Are you, are you kidding me? We have the Savior that we have eternity to look forward to. We have, we have been saved by the grace of God. That He has given us joy that cannot be taken away from us. That we give our joy away. It's a kind of joy that the world does not have. He's the one that brings joy to it. I, it boggles my mind. Now, as human beings, yes, we will go through emotions. I understand that. But really, think about it. We have the Savior. He's given us a brand new life. When he says that I am the God of the living, that means to really enjoy real life. To be fresh, strong, efficient. You see, God became like us as Jesus Christ so that we could become like Him. And that's living. So that we could be alive and well. See, when we make that exchange, when we say, God, I'm exchanging my past, the dead works, or anything in my life that is not of you, I exchange that for what is alive. Don't go back to what is dead. Don't go back to what is not alive. That when we say, God, I give you this hurt or this pain, don't go revisit it. When it pops up in your mind, say, no, that's dead. I'm alive now. And if we say, Lord, forgive me of this sin, and we remember it, say, God, you don't remember it. Why should I? That's dead. I'm alive and well in you. And so when these things pop up, just say, no, no, that's dead. It's dead. No more life. You're dead. Make. You're dead. No life in you. I'm not doing CPR on you anymore. I'm living today and for the rest of eternity. Make means dead, in case anybody doesn't know. <laughs> Galatians 5.24, it reminds us, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of the sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. Listen, if you're ever going to visit the cross, make sure you don't take off what is dead on it. If we're ever going to visit the cross, make sure we don't take off what is dead on it. The Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified its flesh along with its passions and desires. 
Yeah, the dead, the dead things of our past, our life, the things that hold us down, we've nailed it to the cross. Don't go back and get it because if you know as much as I do about dead things, they stink. They do. Don't go and revisit it. Nobody's going to go and, and go revisit a dead thing. If you pass it on the road, you keep going. You don't go back and say, hmm, I'm going to check this thing out. Look at that thing. It's so pretty. You leave it because it's dead. Think of that as, our, as the things that are dead in our life. Don't, in our lives. Don't go back and revisit it. Let it go. Let it die. See, in order for us to truly live, then I must truly die. Let me continue. From our sinful nature. Or to our sinful nature. In order for us to truly live, then I must truly die to my sinful nature. It's going to always pull at us and Uh, The book of John says it like this. And Jesus is explaining this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he says, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal. Will keep it to life eternal. In other words, what he's saying is if you really want to live, you, then you must truly die to yourself. To the things you want to see happen. Or even to the things that drag us down, our past behaviors, whatever it may be. Even a past addiction. Don't go back to the old behaviors. There's something that happens in our marriage and then years later we're still dealing with things. Don't go back there and say, remember, remember, now you did this, you said this. My wife and I, before we were married, we said to us, to ourselves, and, and um, Please hear my heart on this because I know some of you are going through this season of divorce. But we just said divorce is not an option. It's just not. It's, we're not going to go that route. What we're going to do is we're going to work it out to as best as we can for the glory of God so that our marriage can be everything God said it to be. Because it was His promise. I have flaws. You have flaws. Together we'll be flawed together. But we'll be flawed together in the sight of a holy God who can help us get better and better. And we'll go through this life together. And so we've made that commitment. In order for us to truly live, we must truly die. If any of you guys are lifeguards, or if you understand about when a lifeguard has to save someone from drowning, you know that if that person is trying to save themselves, the lifeguard actually has to wait until that person starts to actually give up. Because if he tries to save that person, while that person is trying to save themselves, both of them will drown because that person will just panic and take the lifeguard under and try to use him as a buoy and just hang on to him. But the lifeguard understands, even if he has to punch him in the face or her, whoever's, you know, going through that, because the lifeguard understands that he has the capability to rescue that person. But if you're trying to save yourself... I can't do anything until you give in to my rescuing. Then he can take you to safety. Well, that's the same thing with the Son of God. See, in every situation of life, let the Savior rescue you. And you can write that in your last one. Let him rescue me. Let him rescue me. It's funny that sometimes we don't want him to rescue us. We like feeling the way we do. We like this anger. We like bitterness. We like what it feels like. We like revenge. We like spiting other people. 
We like it because it feels good to us. We like it when we put others down so we look good. We like those things. But it's our sinful nature that likes those things, not our spirit. Not our spirit. That's why before a holy God, we feel horrible when we do things like that. But let him rescue us. Sometimes we don't come to church because we think, well, if I do come to church, then people will think I'm doing something wrong. Like if I come to church, then people are going to say, oh, 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 look at Pastor Sheldon. Oh, he's staying in church again. He's doing something wrong. Oh, he's there with his wife. His wife never come a long time. How come he's staying with his wife? Look, 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 look. They, they stay holding hands. Last week they wasn't holding hands. They're holding hands now. I wonder what happened. I wonder what happened. And we do. We, we may not say it that way. But we think in that way. If I come to church, then that means something's wrong with my life. And people actually don't come to church because they think if they do, then it'll make them look bad. And I thought, no, no, no. I come to church because I want to be around the body of Christ. I need other people in my life. You see, if we're all alone, we die off. We just die off. That's why he says, gather together. Don't give up the habit of meeting together. See, a part of him rescuing us is surrounding us with good people. That's a part of it. That he'll send good people into our lives that may correct us from time to time, may say some things that may hurt us. But boy, when we get back to the foot of the cross and we say, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Is there truth to this? Then he'll say, I'm, I'm trying to rescue you from something you don't see years from now. Let him rescue us. And one of the things I think is difficult for us as parents is when our kids start growing up and they hit their 20s and 30s and, and we see them doing things that are not supposedly pleasing to God. And sometimes we say things, sometimes we don't, depending on you know, our parenting and, and how we've brought them up. And, and it's very difficult to turn them over to the Lord, isn't it, as parents or even as grandparents. You see your grandkids being teenagers and you're wondering, what's the matter with them? What's wrong with them? How come they act like that? And we tend to forget that we went through that season too. But it's very difficult when others try to correct us. But maybe, just maybe, God is trying to rescue us from something. Maybe he is. I'd say just take it back to him because in Hebrews 2.17, it says, Therefore it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. See, there is a reason why he came. There's a reason why we call him Savior. The question is, in what area of my life right now do I need the Savior? What area? Is there anything that I'm going through that I would say, you know, Lord, I, this is, I need the Savior in this area. Could be a relationship, a marriage, financially, uh, even with our thought process. Could be the way we make decisions. It could be the way we treat one another. Lord, save me from how I treat so-and-so. Or it could be the way we think. Lord, save me from this, the, this, the way I think toward a, this person. Or help me in this area of anger. I don't want to feel like this anymore. Or the way I treat my children or my spouse. I don't want to do that anymore. Help me. Save me from this. See, he'll rescue us if we let him. He'll give us all the wisdom we need. For the Son of Man, says Luke 19.10, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
And when Jesus uses this word seek, it's actually a word that means to seek in order to find. That it's not just looking, it's in order to find. In other words, that he's going to do some, some, some life work inside of us. That things in us that are lost, things that, that we cannot put together, things that, that maybe nobody else understands, he will understand. Because he was made in every way just like us and understands everything that we go through. He understands. You know, even though God may not perform a so-called miraculous thing in our lives, isn't it comforting to know that at least there is one person who will listen to us, who understands. He's called the Savior. That he understands everything we go through. Therefore, there's nothing we can bring before him that he won't understand. He understands everything that goes on. He's the kind of Savior that can pinpoint exactly what we're going through in order to rescue us from what's taking place. He can save us. And that word save, when he says to seek and to save that which was lost, it's to rescue from danger or destruction, to restore to health, or to deliver from the penalties of God's judgment. The question is, will I let him save me? And we heard this story before of the man that, that uh, it was raining for days and, and so it started to flood and this man had to actually go on top of his roof because it started to flood. And so here comes this guy in this boat and he comes by and he says, hey dude, jump in. And uh, the floods, the waters are rising and he said, no, my God will save me. My God will save me. I'm praying to the Lord God Almighty that he'll save me. Lord, save me. The guy says, no, jump in the boat. He goes, no, no, no. My Lord will save me. He says, okay. And then he rolls off. Then he prays, God, save me. Heavenly Father, save me. And then a speedboat comes by and the waters are continually rising. And, and the guy says, jump in. He says, no, my Lord God Almighty will save me. Been, I've been serving him all my life. He's going to save me. And he says, no, jump in. He says, no. My Lord will save me. His hand is not too short to save me. And the guy said, okay. And then off he went. And then he prays to God, Lord, save me. A helicopter comes by. They go on the loudspeaker and says, hey, we're lowering a rope to you. Grab onto the rope ladder. And he says, no, the Lord will save me, God Almighty. The waters rise so high that it takes over his whole entire house. He gets swept away and he actually drowns. Now he's standing before God and he sees God and he marches straight over to God and he says, God Almighty, I prayed to you and I asked for you to deliver me, but you did not deliver me. I asked you, why, oh why God, did you not save me? And God looks at him and he says, are you kidding me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> what, what more in the world do you want me to save you with? I thought... That's so true. That God wants to rescue us, but we're the ones that are choosing not to be saved by God. <laughs> However, He does it. He's creative. He'll do it in any way possible. But we are the ones that are saying, No, Lord, I, I, I like feeling like this. Kind of exaggerated story, but it's true. <laughs> But he wants to. He wants to rescue us. Why? Because he loves us. He's our savior. In the book of Acts 3, 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. And, and catch this. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Did you know that God sent his son in the form of a baby as a human being to live this life on this earth, to go through even the worst temptations possible, to pass that test so that he could be your personal appointed savior. That's how loving God is. In this season of Christmas, never forget that he's our savior. And all, all he asks for is a repented heart. A heart that changes its mind, a mind that changes the way it thinks so that it can focus on the Lord. That it changes, it repents. It goes in the opposite direction of our sinful nature so that we can follow God. You see, a repentant heart is all he, de- that's all he demands. And that's, that's, that's enough. That repentive heart is enough to summon the Son of God, also known as the Savior. You say amen to that? I say amen to that. You can close your Bibles and put away your notes. I want to close with this story. And I, I think we might have this book in our bookstore. You might want to go and visit it after. It's, it's actually called No Wonder They Call Him Savior. And it's written by an author, a man by the name of Max Lucado, if you know of him. It's a wonderful book, but I'm just going to read a little bit from this book. It'll help us to remember why we call him Savior. And, and just to remind you of our, uh, the things that we're doing this Christmas season. You know, this uh, coming Wednesday, we have our Christmas program. And I think in your bulletin, there's an invitation card there that you can invite your family and friends to our Christmas program coming up, which is Wednesday at 6.30. We'll be having dinner at 5.15 to about 6.15. And then Friday, we'll also be having dinner, uh, same time. And Friday also, we'll be having our Christmas program. So please invite your family and friends because we all need the Savior. And then pay attention to next week's service times. It's 7 and 11. Mike, cut ye. Good job. You guys did well. Let me just read this story in our closing. It's the summer of 1980 in Miami. Judith Bucknell was homicide number 106 that year. She was killed on a steamy June 9th evening, age 38, weight 109 pounds. But she kept a diary, a painful epitaph to a lonely life. In her diaries, Judy created a character and a voice. The character is herself. Wistful, struggling, weary. The voice is yearning. Judith Bucknell has failed to connect. Age 38, many lovers, much love offered, none returned. Her struggles weren't unusual. She worried about getting old, getting fat, getting married, getting pregnant, and getting by. But her diary was replete with entries such as the following. Where are the men with the flowers and champagne and music? Where are the men who call and ask for a genuine, actual date? Where are the men who would like to share more than just my bed, my booze, or my food? I would like to have in my life, once, before I pass through my life, the kind of intimacy which is part of a loving relationship. Well, she never did. 
Oh, Judy was not a prostitute, nor was she on drugs. She never went to jail, nor was she on welfare. She was not a social outcast. She was respectable. She jogged, she hosted parties, she wore designer clothes, and had an apartment that overlooked the bay. And she was very lonely. Though she had many acquaintances, she had few friends. Though she had many lovers, she had little love. Who is going to love Judy Bucknell, the diary continued. I feel so old, unloved, unwanted, abandoned, used up. I want to cry and sleep forever. A clear message came from her aching words. And though her body died on June 9th from the wounds of a knife, her heart had died long before from loneliness. I'm alone, she wrote. And I want to share something with somebody. Loneliness. Maybe you, like Judy Bucknell, have food everyone. No one knows that you are lonely. On the outside, you are packaged perfectly. perfectly. Your smile is quick. Your job is stable. Your clothes are sharp. Your, your calendar is full. Your talk impressive. But when you look in the mirror, you fool no one. Yet the most gut-wrenching cry of loneliness in history came not from a prisoner or a widow or a patient. It came from a hill, a cross, from a Messiah. My God, my God, he screamed, why did you abandon me? Never have words carried so much hurt. Never has one been so lonely. Now picture the scene. The crowd quiets as the priest receives the goat. The pure, unspotted goat. In somber ceremony, he places his hands on the young animal. As the people witness, the priest makes his proclamation. The sins of the people be upon you. The innocent animal receives the sins of the people. All the lusting, adultery, and cheating, the lying, are transformed, transferred from the sinners to the goat to this scapegoat. He is then carried to the edge of the wilderness and released, banished. Sin must be purged. So the scapegoat is abandoned. Run, goat, run. Well, the people are relieved. God is appeased. The sin bearer alone. And now picture this. On Skull's Hill, on Calvary's hill at the cross of Christ. The sin bearer is again alone. Every lie ever told, every object ever coveted, every promise ever broken, every single sin is on his shoulders. He is sin. God turns away. Run, son. Run. The despair is darker than the sky. The two who have been one are now two. Jesus, who had been with God for eternity, is now alone. The Christ, who was an expression of God, is abandoned. The Trinity is dismantled. The Godhead is disjointed. The unity is dissolved. There's more than Jesus can take. He he withstood the beatings and remained strong at the mock trials. He watched in silence 
as those he loved ran away. He did not retaliate when the insults were hurled, nor did he scream when the nails pierced his wrists. But when God turned his head, that was more than he could handle. My God, the whale rises up from parched lips. The holy heart is broken. The sin bearer screams as he wanders in the eternal wasteland. Out of the silent sky come the words screamed by all who walk in the desert of loneliness. Why? Why did you abandon me? Well, I can't understand it. I honestly cannot. Why did Jesus do it? Oh, I know, I know. I have heard the official answers to gratify the old law, to fulfill prophecy, and the answers are right. They are. But there is something more here. Something very compassionate, something yearning, something personal. What is it? I may be wrong, but I keep thinking of the diary. I feel abandoned, she wrote. Who is going to love Judith Bucknell? And I keep thinking of the parents of the dead the, the child, or the friend at the hospital bedside, or the elderly in the nursing home, or the orphans, or the cancer ward, or even the lonely one in a marriage or family. I keep thinking of all the people who cast despairing eyes toward the dark heavens and cry, Why? But then I imagine him. I imagine him listening. I picture his misting eyes and a pierced hand brushing away a tear. And although he may offer no, no answer, although he may solve no dilemma, although the question may freeze painfully in midair, he, who also was once alone, understands. And that's why we call him Savior. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice you made as a father to send your son to people like me who does not deserve him. But Lord, you've given us such a wonderful gift that we celebrate this season called Christmas because of what Christ has done. And so Jesus, we are eternally grateful for all that you do for us and all that you've done for us. For you're able to save us. You're, you're qualified, more than qualified, to save us and rescue us from our hurts and the things that have pulled us down, even our mistakes, that you took on our sins so that we could have a life worth living for. And so today, Lord, we stand on our feet with the power that you give to us under your grace that we'll live the life that you promised us to live. That from this day forward, we'll be able to stand firm knowing that even though things may not work out as best as we would like it to, that there is a God who understands what we go through. And that alone saves us. Lord, I pray for each and every person here this morning that as we go on with this Christmas season, that we won't forget why we see the word Savior. And then now we understand, or maybe we have, but maybe even more, 
we understand why we call you Savior. Thank you once again for giving us this kind of joy that the world can never offer. Thank you once again for being our Savior, the Almighty God, who has given us life. In your precious name we pray. And we all said, Amen.